Hello, thank you for joining me. This is Ernestine Lyons, host of Quick to Politic, the podcast, the social commentary show that explores topics ranging from social justice to history, economics, small business, and of course, local and national politics. Thank you for joining me. for joining us today. Um, this is Quick to Politic. I'm your host, Ernestine Lyons, and this is the political talk show where we discuss politics, history, economics, the world, and it's a social commentary series that's all about solving um, contemporary issues and problems facing the world, and it may not be a panacea. We might not uh, solve everything, but we're at least here to have like a discourse on, you know, how to make things better and how to remake the new normal. Um, this series, just for a little background, it started as an idea where, um, you know, how can we, you know, just, just get a little bit more concrete uh, information on what the new normal will look like in a post-COVID world. So um, without further ado, here is our guest, Stuart. <laughs> oh my God, I don't even know your name. <laughs> we got Scott Stewart here. Um, and tell us a little bit about yourself, Scott. Thank you so much for being on our show. Sure, so Scott, uh, my name is Scott Stewart. Um, I actually am a coworker of Ernestine Lyons at the lovely Build Institute. Um, I am their development director. I've, I spent the last seven years really um, digging deep into nonprofits, digging deep into social issues, um, and kind of looking at frameworks and strategy about how to move them forward um, and the interconnectivity between a lot of social issues and how to eliminate those barriers um, in society, very many of the systemic barriers that exist. So um, whether that's, you know, my previous job was in healthcare, so really focusing on um, community health, public health, and, and the different factors that run into that. Um, doing development, but also looking at how to how to partner in different ways. Um, and then I also serve as the chairperson for the board of directors for Wayne County Safe, which is um, a comprehensive agency focusing on survivors of sexual violence um, and addressing that. And then I also started Pontiac Soup, uh, much like yourself, Miss Ernestine, um, in in the city of Pontiac. So um, doing lots of different things like that. Um, yeah, that's me. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. And um, I just realized that as a car zooms down my street at top speed, um, I don't I don't really talk too much about Harper Woods. And um, I'm a councilwoman there. And um, prior to that, I started Harper Woods Soup. Um, and of course, we both work for the wonderful organization that, you know, is the, the parent of, you know, Detroit Soup and sort of started that movement of these community and neighborhood soups that um, it's a micro lending or micro granting dinner. Um, and, you know, a lot of folks come with new business ideas or creative projects that are going to positively impact communities. Um, and, you know, so they pitch these ideas. It's a little like Shark Tank when you think about, you know, an entrepreneur or somebody who's creative really standing in front of like their community or their peers and you know asking for a vote you know and everybody gets together and has a sense of community over um, a bowl of soup so you have soup salad all kinds of food and um, I started that because in Harper Woods I really wanted to create a feeling of unity where people are not uh, zooming down the street at top speeds and uh, <laughs> so um, 
but yes, yes, um, I really wanted to um, talk with Scott on um, Quick to Politic because all day at work, all we do is uh, work, of course, but, you know, in between there, <laughs> we, we have conversations, um, like political conversations, and I'm like, Scott, how do we fix this? What's the answer to this? And of course, Scott always has an answer. So <laughs> I'm just like, okay. Um, one of my first questions I really wanted to delve into asking was, um, how can how can we solve some societal problems that have been exposed like gaps in the system that have really um you know existed for for working class people like socioeconomic gaps and you know issues and inequities in healthcare um they've existed for a really long time but now we see that with this 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 pandemic and the 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 problems that have arisen from, you know, just not necessarily having a great system in place, um, you know, especially for the most vulnerable in our communities, we now see that there's an exposure of like, okay, this doesn't work, this isn't going to be sustainable, um, and it's not going to include everybody. Um, so problems, also, there's also problems with unemployment and sick leave. Um, how can we like solve those systemic issues in healthcare? What is the answer? <laughs> Yeah, right. I mean, what's the answer? I think plenty of people could give a million different answers, right? But I think, you know, the core and crux of what we need to do during this time is, is really start to take a look at our system. Because when you start to look at, you know, so when I started my previous job at um, Auto Community Health, as the name, um, we really started digging deep into what are those systemic barriers that, and, and how are all these systems interconnected? So I think in the healthcare industry, I think what is nice, um, you know, for record, I never thought I'd work in healthcare. I really was like, I hate healthcare because uh, all I thought about was hospitals and insurance companies and kind of how predatory a lot of them are in, in many cases and, and how they aren't really effective. And so um, I found federally qualified health centers, community health centers, and kind of thought and really was able to think differently about healthcare as a whole and, and how we can really address the needs. So I think what I found in healthcare, what is really interesting is. Um, you know, the framework of social currents of health. So um, I think what I've seen in healthcare compared to others is that this is one of the more comprehensive frameworks that I've seen and how we really see the interconnectivity between social issues. Um, and so, you know, what, what social determinants of health basically says is about 20% of your health is actually clinical care, right? Access to care issues, the quality of care that you receive. But the rest of that 80% is are all issues that, um, are structural, are environmental, are all of that. So about 30% are health behaviors. So, you know, drug and alcohol use, diet and exercise, tobacco, sexual activity, those kind of things. Another 10%. Just for one second. So you're saying social, social tenets of health. Um, social determinants. Social determinants of health. Okay, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. And I'm glad because um, just for clarification uh, from a person who's, you know, that lexicon is a little, you know, <laughs> I appreciate that because in the healthcare world, you know, we always like to use acronyms and big old words. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, but that's the framework. It's you know, we normally it's S T O H. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, then you look at things like physical environment, like air and air and water quality, housing and transit, you know, all of those types of issues, and then social and economic factors. So things like. You know, do you feel safe in your community? What's what's your median income in the area? Um, all of those kind of areas, you know, you talk about unemployment and sick leave, 
you know, right now we're seeing in this crisis that it's, you know, disproportionately affecting, you know, people of color and people in inner cities. And the reason for that is not, it's not a mystery <laughs> as much as people like to pretend. Why are people, people of color being impacted so negatively? Well, it's because of all these barriers that we've seen for many, many years. Right. Continue to ignore and we, and we haven't done a good job with looking at how these inequities are, um, are faced, you know, how these inequities are really prevalent and, and, and moving that needle forward with addressing them. Um, so even education is another big one, right? So we know that education is one of the main factors that moves people forward, um, but yet we disinvest in education at every, at every chance we get. You know, as we go through this COVID-19 crisis, we know that money to schools is gonna be, you know, we're facing a $3, million or $3 billion budget deficit in the state of Michigan right now. And more than likely, what's gonna be hit with that? schools <laughs> um schools are going to get less money again for the first time we were talking about increasing their you know allowance and now we are, are basically saying we're going to take some away <laughs> and so how does that impact in a time when we and also even with school funding as it starts is we know that it's disproportionately um impacting inner city schools and, and those in urban areas compared to others that get more and so in, as we look at all these different issues, as I started to look at issues that honor community health, I said, all of this is connected. We can't just say, okay, we're gonna be here and provide clinical care. We know that most of our patients at honor community health, you know, don't have access to transportation, don't have access to quality housing, are dealing with a lot of community safety issues, those types of things. And so how do we address that? Same as addressing the needs of our Hispanic population, it was, we need to be making sure that we are getting people from that community to be our, you know, to be coworkers at our facility that can translate directly for those individuals rather than just saying, oh, let's just translate over the phone. They want to feel that connection to someone in their community. Exactly. There have actually been a lot of, um, there's been a lot of movement and a friend of mine um, who uh, works for like Google Translate was mentioning um, that there is now a movement for more critical translation services right. because, you know, those are services that, you know, sometimes you're not always going to get the most accurate, you know, representation of like what the language is actually saying to that person. Right. And they're going to feel like, you know, translation services are kind of letting them down. And that's been an issue in our society, you know, as a part of, I guess that would also be like under like social determinants of health, you know, because you, you know, we talked about these issues uh, ranging from, you know, socioeconomic status and access to transportation, access to, um, you know, just, just quality education they're gonna determine how healthy you are. You know, the more you know about nutrition and the, the better you're gonna eat. And so- And not just nutrition, but culturally competent nutrition, right? I think something yeah. I see a lot of times with nutritionists and dietitians are, well, you need to get away from everything that you're currently eating and just eat. What else is there? You need to be presented right. with good alternatives. And is it something, you know, are we taking in those cultural factors in, right? If you're going to tell someone who, you know, I know, you know, my partner is Hispanic, right? And so as you see, um, you know, if someone were to say, never eat tortillas again, because those are bad for you. Like that would be ridiculous, right? Because most of the food that I eat with my partner is, you know, based on tortillas or say, you know, it's like, are there other ways that we can be healthy in those environments that um, are realistic and culturally based. And I think that is something that I don't see often. It's funny that you talk about translation too, right? Like, uh, you know, there's a lot of Spanish movies that are coming on Netflix right now that are being translated into English. Mm -hmm. um, and just under, like, we'll watch them together and we will laugh because the translations just make it sound stupid. <laughs> you know, it makes it sound silly when you actually look at 
So, so uh, my partner will look at me and go, that is not what that phrase was meant to be translated as <laughs> very clearly to that day. And so when you don't have translation that is effective or meaningful in the dialects that those people are understanding, um, you know, that is, a, that is a barrier that does impact how people receive care, how people understand situations, particularly in a medical field where, you know, gosh, <laughs> how many crazy words do we use in the medical field that don't make any sense to anybody as is, let alone try to translate it, right? And so, you know, there's just so many barriers that exist to that. And so, and, and part of that is also discrimination. Part of that is stress. Part of that is community engagement. It's, there's so many factors that lead into that. And, you know, we talk a lot about, um, you know, in the education system is that your zip code shouldn't determine your future. Um, and that can be in education, but that's not everything, right? Your zip code and your geography in the city of Detroit, we know that people who grew up in Southwest Detroit have asthma because of the marathon factories and other things like that. And so, but then we don't do anything about it. We just say, oh, <laughs> you know, but how are all these? And, and I think that's what I try to see when I look at social issues and social justice. I look at, okay, well, how is your, in, how is your, I don't look at this as just social terms of health. Health is the base of it, but it's all, so just the base of every other social issue. So when you look at how do we address domestic violence, how do we address sexual assault, how do we address all of these different areas, more than likely it, it is based in something that is part of this framework. And so how do we then think broader and more systemic about, you know, if we're looking to address hunger issues or, you know, food insecurity, well, what other things are leading to food insecurity? Exactly, and and um, I'm glad you actually mentioned like the systemic, you know, part of it because that leads right into my next question, which is, um, I know you, and you are a firm believer in, you know, policies on the state, local, and federal level that dramatically impact the daily lives of uh, individuals, like changing uh, fundamentally. And so, um, what kind of dramatic policy change, you know, what will that look like to you um, as we dive into creating a new normal, particularly like with regard to overcoming these systemic barriers? Yeah, and so I think there's many things that are coming to fruition right now, right? You see health as a major factor, right? Just how are we, how is the inequities in health impacting people right now? I think that's major, particularly as, you know, as we're looking at this COVID crisis and how does insurance work, how does free cost of care work. Um, not that that hasn't been in included in many other things for many years, but finally, you know, people can't get insulin to save their lives. <laughs> they have to get it through a black market system, you know, if they can't afford it. Um, so you're seeing many things like that. I think you're seeing a lot of economic issues that are coming to fruition, a lot of things on housing policy. Um, you know, I think when you look at economic issues, it's like, okay, well, no what the things that we've talked about in this primary race on the Democratic side have come to fruition extensively now. Um, it's funny now looking in the city of Detroit too and seeing, oh, all, not, not all of a sudden now water shutoffs are being stopped, right? Great. <laughs> so now water is valuable because we're in a crisis. It's, like it's a human right. You know, people should right. have access to water. To clean and water. same when, and, nation. Exactly. And same when you look at access to broadband or internet. It's like, you know, how much, how many things are telling, you know, I get harassed by DTE and consumers every day to move to an e-bill, which I do. <laughs> but like, you know, for the people who don't or can't, how do we do that? How do we make sure exactly. So you're not going to have access to an app that now we're switching over to because you can't come to City Hall and pay the bill anymore. So, right. you know, that's... And then looking, looking at jobs too, you know, and looking at unemployment, it's like, well, most of the job, most of the people who are working um, in 
who are low income and whatever are working jobs that are considered essential. And so how are they supposed to address this crisis when they, you know, when they have to go to work? <laughs> and I'm, glad, I'm actually, um, not to cut you off, but I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that particular instance because that was something that um, the Surgeon General was sort of bothering me. I mean, not only because I feel like I, he looks like he's 12 years old and he's too young to be Surgeon General. Um, but, you know, he kind of was just like, all right, folks, you know, as a black person, I'm telling you, act right, do the right thing. It's like, no, when you think about disproportionately, you know, you have a lot of, you know, African-Americans who are working in industries where, you know, you're going to be the mailman, you're going to be working at a fast food restaurant, you're going to be working at, you know, as an essential worker, you're going to be, right. you're going to be out there exposing yourselves. And you also have an issue of like multi-generational households where, you know, of course you're going to expose grandma to it because you live, right. grandma lives with her niece and nephew and her grandson and granddaughter. So it's like that is, and, you know, just to kind of jump off of that too, is that, you know, you talk about sick leave too. Well, people have, now we're luckily starting to address some of that with some of the COVID-19 pieces that have come up, but that's been an issue forever. You can't stay home if you're sick because you don't have access to sick leave. And, and other things like that is people who are working in these jobs. For restaurant industry particularly, you know, they get nothing. <laughs> they get terrible benefits and $2 an hour to start. So people aren't cheating. How are we dealing with that, right? And so kind of all those pieces. I think there's a really telling phrase that I've heard over the years that I find very valuable. And that says, when white America gets a cold, black America gets pneumonia. Or, the, right. or right. you know, something that is so much more. And I think that just, you know, to me, it tells me, or people of color in general, you know, all of the, that's because there are so many issues that we need to address on that. And it's not just a, it's not just a white issue too, but looking at the, or it's not just a people of color issue, but it's also, it's for all people, right? It's, it's for those. It's an economic issue because those, if you're, if you're like poor, you are going to be, you know, so it's not right. really about the color. It's more about, okay, you're not necessarily going to be getting the things that you need. Thinking about, right. Thinking about rural areas. I mean, there are plenty of people there who, if they, you know, looking at the hospital systems in rural areas, all of that, the reason why we're doing what we need to make sure that it doesn't get to those areas is also because their hospital systems have like one ICU doctor. <laughs> so, There's a stigma attached to being a country doctor going way back into like the 1850s. Oh, he's the country doctor. And so it's like, you're gonna be a little behind the, the rest of the more you know urban medical scene. And so also you're probably not gonna know as much because you're not really being exposed to the big issues that you know bigger hospitals are equipped for. So that's a problem in itself. Right. And so it's, 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 up, and that's why it leads back to the systems, right? We know that, we know that there have been racist systemic policies, of course, and that is a major factor, but for everybody, we're all being screwed over and getting mad at the people who are in the same, in the same boat as us, right? Rather than getting mad at the people who are at the top making these decisions and making and, and, and taking the money while we all suffer, right? And so how do we start to address that? I think when you, when you hear, and this is actually a really interesting kind of talk about, you know, and thinking about the policies that Elizabeth Warren and other people like that who have been, you know, trying to say, we need to make sure that we're investing in worker-friendly policies and not policies that are, you know, related to just addressing the business needs or addressing things of that sort. This is the time now that we need to start saying, let's address the needs of our workers because it's not the person at the top who's making the money. The person who's making the money for you are the people at the bottom. The people who are making money, you know, it's funny to me that even now, <laughs> you know, we're talking about 
uh, hospitals taking huge cuts of employees and layoffs, yet their CEO last year made you know multi 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 millions of dollars i think up into double digit millions right so like 10 million 20 15 million and same with you know health systems and health insurers okay well the person the the ceo of blue cross is still making 23 million dollars a year in compensation but yet now we're talking about laying off all those people and doing a bunch of these other things that are ridiculous um or you know blue cross and others are known for just not paying you know, health providers or, or paying the bills of all these people, they, you know, to make you go through hell in a handbasket just to get, you know, a, a simple procedure can cover because God forbid it's going to take, <laughs> you know, cost so much money, right? And so all these things lay up when, again, we need to address policies that are worker friendly rather than helping those at the top every single second. Um, that with a lot of the legislation that's come out as small businesses for example are struggling right now and much of the money that's been coming out you know think about your local mom-and-pop shop are they a do they have a strong relationship with their bank probably not do they have a strong relationship in, in this in the networking to be able to get past some of this crazy legislation probably not um, and so how do we address that how do we move that forward um, so that we're actually addressing the needs of our small businesses. When you think about um, something that I find funny is that our small business um, associations uh, see people, they, they mostly deal, people, deal with businesses that are 10 and up. Well, what about the sole proprietorship? You know, have 10 employees are up. What about the sole proprietorship? What about the businesses that are under 10 people? They're it's the ones who need the serving business. small businesses. It's serving businesses that are, you know, front chains and franchises, but yet they have a fewer, fewer employees. But overall, you know, they, they have, you know, lots of employees and they have a structure. They have a strong relationship with the banks, with, you know, networking institutions and things. So exactly. That, you know, they, they're kind of a little bit. In, in a better place so that, you know, if something happens, then, you know, you would think um, right. they would just be in a better place to be able to bounce back. And thinking about insurance too, it's like, you know, this now, now it's come to a head about how employer sponsored insurance is probably not a way to go. We don't have any backbone when we, <laughs> when people lose, when we now have, a, you know, kajillions of people, 40% of our society basically now losing their jobs. And so how, yeah, now, and now we have a bunch of people on unemployment, a bunch of people without insurance. How do we address those issues, right? This is all coming to a head. And so now we need to start thinking about, this is the best time that we need to start thinking about those policy solutions that are gonna work for the benefit of all people rather than those at the top and those who you know, are, are millionaires and billionaires and all of that type of stuff. Exactly. And I'm, I'm glad you talked, you touched on like, you know, that's the biggest part of like how we can change healthcare policy because, um, you know, it's funny in, in Theodore Allen's book, The Invention of the White Race, it kind of talked about the history of, you know, people who were poor were always in the same boat with each other. Um, so when you think all the way back to like in, in America, slavery in America, you had, you know, poor indentured servants and you had, you know, uh, slaves who, you know, they were all in the same boat of like, okay, we, we're poor, we don't have a lot of resources if we band together. And a lot of the rebellions that were happening in the early 1700s were, you know, mixed race and people were seeing that like, okay, well, we have more interest uh, together because we are not the powers that be we are not the landed elites we are not the gentry and so therefore we we need to demand more and so you know talking about demanding more there is a history of doing that coming together for you know your economic 
reasons, you know, your economic, you know, interests are the same. So therefore you come together. But I think in, in recent times, we've seen this um, bootstrapping kind of divisive um, conversation come in and where, you know, people are people whose interests would lie with the same socioeconomic group kind of villainize people who are in the same boat as them financially because of the fact that in some ways there's this divisiveness that says oh well you know one day i'll be like the rich one day i'll aspire to have that and so why knock them when you know they're out here being job creators or you know and it's just like you don't demand that accountability that say in europe they would just say okay well this isn't right that we should all be being given this this universal basic right and so um there was a episode of samantha uh samantha b's uh, full frontal where she kind of talked about how you know if a room is on fire and it, it, it kind of alluded to that that um you know meme that's out there where you know if the room is on fire and and you know you're just going to let yourself burn because you don't want somebody who is you know a minority or a person who is you know dealing with financial hardships and things you're you don't want to see them you know kind of get an unfair advantage when it's not an unfair advantage it's an egalitarian advantage across the board for everybody to have and i think we've kind of lost sight of that um in some ways right. think that people who are down on their luck or people who are you know on a lower rung of the socioeconomic totem you know they're there because they made bad life decisions yeah and i think you see a lot of people who talk about that bootstraps thinking and i think that's Sorry, my dog's not barking. Um, I'm putting mines on silent because I just know she's gonna come. This dog is gonna come barking, and she's gonna do something really like. <laughs> I love it. Uh, um, I know my dog's in the scratch at the door. I was like, "Can you stop? I'm on the call." Uh, no, but That's the only time she does it though, like any. Okay, <laughs> I've never had it. Um, I think a lot of this is, you know, a lot of when I think about things is, you know, I don't, it doesn't really matter about socialism, communism, you know, all those things that people like to spray out. I think about collectivism. I think when you think about how do we impact each other? Yes. I think when we think about community, and I think that's something that I keep thinking about now in an age where we kind of don't connect in many ways that we used to, right? Is how do we think, not, at, all things that we do, we are all interconnected, right? It's the same with these systems that are connected. It's the same with us as people. We are all connected to each other and we need to bring each other up. It is about community, it's about collectivism. And I think too many times we're thinking in an individualistic way. And, you know, the reality when you talk about bootstraps thinking is there are like mm, 0.00001% who are going to make it as, who are going to make it as a millionaire or billionaire. So the actual reality is that there are so many systemic barriers that exist that are just going to keep knocking you down and knocking you down when you try to pull yourself up. So I remember being in a car with one of my friends once and seeing someone on the side of the road and he said, well, that's ridiculous. We have so many jobs at my work. He could come and be a dishwasher. I said, okay, well, what if he doesn't have strong transportation to get to that job? What if he doesn't have, you know, if he came into your work right now, and hadn't showered, you know, likely in a couple of days. Unfortunately, that's, you know, the reality for many of our individuals living with homelessness. Um, would you give him a job? No, you would judge him immediately and say, oh God, no, are we gonna give him a job? Because that's the reality that these people are facing, let alone, you know, the mental health crisis that has exacerbated that and the housing policies that have exacerbated that. And so, you know, we like to say that people should just bring them up by their bootstrap, bootstraps. 
Um, but there's also this reality of generational and situational poverty that we have to think about. about. Thank you, exactly. So for me, if, you know, as someone who has had, had privilege in his life, who knows kind of the systems by like the back of my hand, if something were to happen to me, if I were to lose my job one minute and get into poverty, I could get myself out of that pretty easily. But for someone who's been living in generational poverty for many years, for over, over family members to family members, you know, you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and, and many of them are living in safety, right? They're trying to just get to safety. They're taking care of their families, taking care of their, you're making sure that everybody in their family is safe, taking care of those basic needs. And so how do you get, you can't think about that next level. You can't think about self-actualization. And so, you know, if that's, that I think is something that we just have to keep in mind when we keep thinking about all these things is that A, it's collective. We have to think about each other. So thinking about your, only your own life and your own issue is something that's not going to be effective because your, issue, your life is connected to everybody else's. And then same, you know, again, thinking about too, um, you know, I think the narrative piece of this, right, is that people think, you know, based on because of Reagan and, um, you know, the welfare. Economics and trickle down economics and things of that sort. Uh, that's a whole nother piece on economics but even just like the narrative of talking about welfare queens and stuff like that and that whole narrative it's like now people think that people of color are the people who are on welfare well no the majority is white people in rural areas <laughs> you know and so we have this automatic thing that has been put into people's brains that unless you start thinking about the data and thinking about what actually is is that everything that you're yeah, everything that either side is told is narrative right it's it's all about narrative and so how do we break through that how do we look at facts again? How do we continue to think that, you know, not demonize our neighbors and our, and our communities and, and our other people who are similar to us and going through the same situations? And then I think as we look towards the solution of getting out of this, as we get out of this, as we look towards what solutions we need to build, it's, it's we need to bring all these coalitions together. We need to think about partnerships in a different way. So one thing that you think that when solutions start to be drafted is that you'll find people partnering that you might not think about, right? So if there's something going on with some, someone wanting like fracking or something in some sort of ocean, you know, like you might have the conservation folks coming together with, you know, the oil industry, for example, who might, you know, there's just all these kind of different things that can come together. And right now, what we need is coalitions to come together and start fighting for what is right, because this is the time. Because we're going to come out of it. It be a unified message. Absolutely. And we have to bring those coalitions together who are fighting for many of these different things, right? When I'm thinking of and looking at these lists of environmental hazards, um, in education policy, housing policy, all these different things, we need to bring together now because we need to start thinking and moving forward the system and the society that we want to live in after this. And we need to fight for that at the moment. Because all right, all right. That's the only way that we're going to come out of this in the way that's we cannot go back to what was normal. Normal was not good for so many people. And so we need what we do are calling the yes, new normal, but we need a new society. We need to build a society that we want to live in because this is the time to do so. In times of catastrophe come times of change, right? We're seeing five to 10 years of innovations in a month <laughs> right now um, that are happening nonstop. And so how do we continue to move that forward but think about it larger? I do think that it's necessary to have your grassroots folks, your grassroots folks, push people and then move people forward, but you also need the people on the policy side who have those solutions drafted and ready to bring those movements together. There are only so many times when something is in the narrative and something and solutions can be drafted at the same time. And so moving, this is the time to do so. And so we need to start thinking about that 
and have the grassroots folks pushing and the people on the policy side moving that forward as well through the system. All right, all right. I mean, like, I feel like I, this, I, I got like a little bit of a chill there because it's just like, yes, this is the sermon that you need to, to like really motivate people. And so um, I just want to also tell my audience that um, Scott is also a New York Times bestseller. He is writing a book uh, on title fix this scott um you got the answers so um yeah i just i just kind of want to um piggyback off of that going into um my next question which is um okay by worldwide pandemic uh preparedness america trails most of the industrialized developed world um we were late to roll out testing um, a manufacturing problem uh, with test kits were that were initially sent out into the field were kind of delayed we were delayed in also approving commercial test kits um, as a whole and then as a nation um, it kind of set us back in stopping or slowing the tide of COVID-19 why is such a powerful nation performing so badly just looking at that from your you know healthcare background and understanding that and just even like I don't know, I've been trying to figure out like, um, you know, just as somebody who's active in, in politics and in understanding that, you know, people are saying like, why weren't we able to, you know? It's because we've left, you know, this in times of crisis, this is when having a collective mindset is important, right? Because, um, you know, thinking about it on the national level, there were so many failures that we did not start addressing this crisis until what, March, <laughs> early March, maybe. Maybe late March. I mean, we started addressing it so. Yeah, it was more late March when you think about right. it. Least, you know, on, on the state level, and then you right. saw, you know, a, 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 like the president made an address. I think it was like the 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 second week of, of April or so, like maybe the fifteenth. Um, right. So, and so, as you think about that, right? It's like it's like if you don't a if you're ignoring the problem, you can't do those things in the beginning to start those steps that we need to protect the people, right? And so. You know, when you started seeing Seattle having their pieces, um, you know, having all their cases come up and the nursing home, I remember that was, I remember we were in the office talking about that even um, at that point at Pearl. And, oops, sorry. Um, and so when you, but so we ignored that and, and just said, okay, well, they're, you know, they'll address it, whatever, it's fine. And then, you know, thinking about the national strategy is that there isn't one. There isn't one where FEMA, you know, so at the state level, so we've been struggling at my previous employer to even get right you know regular testing kits regular ppe and the national stockpile was depleted in mm, less than a week <laughs> when we should have been assessing this in the end of january even you know i know the administration right now keeps saying oh the who didn't tell people this yada yada, yeah, yada. that whole issue was like Late january like, saying oh, that this file wasn't for the states well then okay if you're the federal government <laughs> who are you you know, presiding over, if not the states. And right. And that's then, all meant for, if not your country. Right. And so you started seeing that they weren't addressing it. That as much as the administration is talking about how who isn't, didn't do their due diligence, didn't do their job, the World Health Organization, um, they came out and said that this will be a global pandemic at the end of January. And we still spent two months basically doing nothing about it <laughs> and so and then the trump administration did say like oh well uh, i was being impeached so that's how and, and that you can you can chew gum and walk at the same time <laughs> cdc was not dealing with impeachment all of those different theses were not dealing with impeachment you could still could have put a committee together to talk about the different things that you need to do if a pandemic is coming through and so 
and then two, you know, thinking about historical pieces, right? We should we we had agreements in place that never went forward with building building more ventilators automatically, things like that that just were not there. And so then we left the states to fend for themselves. But then what happened? I know in the state of Michigan, we spent about two, you know, something like two million dollars to buy a bunch of PPE or testing, and then all of a sudden, the minute after we had already paid the invoice, after we already paid everything, <laughs> FEMA came in and stole it from us. And so, and so you, how do you, how can you say the states can defend for themselves, but then the federal government's going to go through and, and, and buy everything up and then make pricing more expensive, make all these different things happen that make it impossible for states to actually address the issue on themselves. And then we think about state policy in these cases, right? States can't run a deficit. And yet the federal government doesn't want to spend any money on helping states and local municipalities get through this. Well, now look at, look at what's going to happen next, right? Is that even on a local level, the city of Pontiac, where I live, just got out of emergency management a couple of years back, and we might be thrust right back into it because of the fact that state revenue sharing is going to be down, and we're going to, we're going to have to assess what services are really necessary again. And we're probably going to go backwards on that. Exactly, and Michigan as a whole was dealing with. It. I know that um, Harper Woods, we've we've been having some issues where we want to remain solvent, and so in some ways we we never really want to get to cutting city services. But you know, there's been a downturn, and we have been get kind of dependent on you know revenue sharing. State revenue sharing is right. essential, and so you start to get to the point that you know Michigan, we we had a hard time getting back on our feet after the 2008 financial crisis. And so right. now that we've kind of like been able to have some degree of prosperity, what is that going to look like for us coming back, you know, full steam? Right. And I think we'll all, we're all going to struggle with that. Every state is going to struggle with that because all of our, all of their tax income is down. Um, all these different pieces that lead to revenue are down. And so when you look at $3 billion that we need to cut over each year in Michigan, that is a huge issue, and this is why a national policy is there. I, I I agree that states, you know, states can have do with their own things many times, and and that's important to have some flexibility towards what you want to do. Um, but <laughs> in times like this, we need a national strategy. All states need to come together and address that. You're starting to see that in Michigan, right? You know, we're a part of the coalition for the Midwestern states, things like that, and how to reopen the society. But this is the time that the state, that the federal government needs to say. These are the steps you need to take. This is how we're going to get out of this crisis. Here is your PPE. We will buy this and we'll work with each of the different states on moving this forward. There are only 50 states and some territories, right? It's like, you know, that is so much easier. I was just listening to something else too the other day, another podcast that talks about, um, you know, how, how, how there's only so many peers that you can run to and they all need to come together now, right? There's only 49 other people who you can talk to about what to do in this crisis because no one else is running a state, <laughs> you know, at the time of a crisis. And so we are seeing a truly unprecedented crisis that has impacted every single piece, even the financial crisis in 2008 and whatnot did not see restaurants closed. Restaurants were fine. And that was something that actually oh. was having the same discussion with someone um, recently where, you know, oh, it was, it was Phil Simpson who came on um, our coffee and conversations with um, right. small business entrepreneurs that we do at work at Build Institute. Um, yeah. You know, he was just saying that in 2008, um, he also, you know, went through some, some tough times as a business owner, entrepreneur, and a creative. Um, but things were still, you were able to take your family to the movies, you were able to go to the right. park, you were able to go out and not have this sense of, 
impending doom all day, every day, where right. Exactly, right. I mean, I think that's what is so fundamentally different is that everybody is being impacted right now. And that's hard, right? It's, it's very hard to deal with that. It's hard to not leave your house, but the fact of the matter is that if we, if we, we the way that we're gonna get out of this is by working together. We were already too late and that's why we're in the situation that we're in. So now we need to do the steps and do what we need to do to get out of this in the right ways. I'm not saying I'm an I'm a epidemiologist. I'm not saying I'm an expert on anything, <laughs> you know? There are plenty of people who have plenty more experience in healthcare than me, but I think when you look at the general consensus, it's that people, that we need to do this to get out of it because we are already too late and too many people have died. 80,000 people have died in America and that is unacceptable. That is truly unacceptable. And that's because we were late with addressing anything with, with all of these different solutions. And so when we are late with that, we're not seeing that. And that is more than 9-11. That is more than many of the wars that have died because of this crisis. And so we need to act like that. This is impacting so many Americans. And I am not a firm believer that we need to have let, our, let our elders die just because the economy is breaking. We need to figure out new ways to work the economy. We need to figure out ways to protect our people because that's what that's what we are as America. This is a collect. We need to act collectively, and this is seeing that fracture. I feel like in some ways, like um, you know, the 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 government never really had a good track record of you know just just moving things quickly. You know, there's always going to be bureaucratic red tape, and so you almost wonder um, corporations are able to to jump in and you know just move things quickly. Um, in some ways, since you have this rise in corporate social responsibility, what responsibility do they then have? I know that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is really stepping up their efforts to, you know, come up with a cure and eradicate this issue um, on a worldwide level. Like, what responsibility do smaller corporations kind of have in, in like, all right, we need to mobilize some of these issues or even pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, how do we hold them accountable? Because in some ways they have the, the means and the, the capabilities to move things without a lot of regulation and red tape. But, you know, where, where is then the, the, the onus on them to like, okay, well, this is going to affect us all. It's all. If you look at someone like Elon Musk being very upset that, you know, this is impacting him so negatively, but it's like, what have you actually done, Elon Musk, to kind of step in and say, okay, well, this is what we need to do. Maybe we can ramp up testing and, you know, I could, you know, um, somehow make an impact in a way that is philanthropic, you know, when you look at other entrepreneurs and, um, CEOs of big companies, you know, they're, they're, like I said, Bill Gates stepping up. So. Um, I, I think we have to, so I think there has been a good group of people who have stepped up, right? I think a lot of the foundations in this world have stepped up. You just saw probably a $200,000 small business relief fund that just came out from a bunch of the Pontiac Funders Collaborative and others that are connected for the Pontiac community. You've seen a lot of that come through. Um, a lot of people finding money to, to give to um, hunger issues and other things like that. I think right now what you're seeing is a lot of people are giving to basic needs and a lot of people are giving to small businesses. And I think that's great. Right? That's the first step. Um, I think this is the time when we need people to give more. This is the time when, when you need to show your value in society because things are changing, right? We are finally holding businesses more accountable, right? But just, just doing a little bit in social corporate responsibility isn't always the way to go. You need to also be fighting too for 
the systems that are in place. Like I think, I think we need to be holding, holding businesses and corporations and others accountable um, to a lot of this as well. You know, I think what's funny is that we talk about people, right? We think we going back to that bootstraps issue is that people, we, you need to have six months in income, you know, in saving, in your savings account at all times. So average like, American is not ready for a $1,000 emergency. Right. And apparently neither are businesses, right? Mm -hmm. Businesses, the minute that this happened said, we need relief. For, and I'm not talking about small businesses because they're mostly working day to day, but I'm talking about your corporations. You said, oh gosh, Life has changed so much. We need immediate relief or else or else there's gonna be a catastrophe. Yeah, look at Neiman Marcus. I feel like everything in there is a thousand dollars. Why did you not have the meeting? And the airlines and other things like that. It's like, well, maybe if you didn't spend the last couple of years after the tax relief that you got, buy back buying back all of your stocks and doing all of these there we go. Your executives, and maybe you'd have some money, but you can't then come and say, you know, it was funny, I was having a conversation with somebody the other day who is a fundraiser and other things like that as well. And she said, you know, I have someone who, who, who started complaining to me who has had a really strong business for many years and said, and this, she said, this is supposed to, this year was supposed to be my best year yet, $20 million and stuff. And then started talking and, and she's like, and she's like, we really need that PPP loan. And she's, and my, and my friend was like, do you really though? Do you? Yeah. <laughs> you don't have enough money to be able to, to cover that in your savings account. God forbid you can't go to your second lake house, you know? And so it's, it's also that, that piece too, is that many people, uh, it's that individual, individualistic thing. It's the same reason why we can't get a livable wage for people. You know, it's, it's, it's all of that together because look at that. Someone's complaining because they weren't going to have a $20 million year. But okay. yet you think someone's being greedy and, and money grubbing if they want $15 an hour versus eight fifty? Right, because it's going to move into your profit. I'm sorry, but I am a firm believer that profit should not go over people. And we need to address those issues well that have, that have been going on for many, many years. That yeah, ever since, it, it, you know, there was a lot of, uh, like in the 1930s when, you know, you, you had like the stock market that crashed and, you know, a lot of the protections and the regulations that were put in place then were saying like, okay, your, your corporate, you know, the, the, the stock, you can't really put so much of, of that in back into your company so that so that that's the bottom the bottom line then becomes more important than being innovative as a country uh, right. as a company more important than you know protecting your employees or doing right. well um and so i feel like in the 1980s and 90s you saw this deregulation and so now it's like oh well our corporate ceos now need to make you know 300 times what their employees make you know and, and, and i feel like that's when you started to move into like this almost you know tone deaf society where you know you don't realize that this is not okay but yet you, you're right and thinking about how, how there's so much more lack of opportunity for other people right when we talk about small businesses particularly people who people of color and women founders you know, they have so much more lack of opportunity than people who are white males, right? They have venture capitalists don't give, they think it's a larger risk, you know, all those types of things. And so that's unfair, right? And so, and so, you know, we talk about people who, you know, oh, how, you know, we need people who can innovate and just because they got a good idea and got some money doesn't mean you should take it all away. Yeah, okay, great. But they should also be taking, they should also be, you know, thinking collectively about society, they should also be giving some of that money back, you know, gosh forbid, another couple of percentage in tax that will fund most policies <laughs> um, isn't going to kill you. Another, like, you know, if you're making $2 million a year and you're all of a sudden, you know, we have another, 
you know, a couple, a little bit more as taken out of taxes isn't going to kill you. But for other people, that will change their whole life in policy, right? And so thinking about those types of pieces is so important as well, is that that's, we need to, we, we need that. People, people who are rich are great. They are important, whatever, they're whatever. But we do need to think about how they can also give their fair share to society and not thinking about, again, trickle-down economics has clearly failed <laughs> for many, many years. And we need to start thinking broader about how, they, how that operates. Thank you. This is why I love talking to you about like these issues. So, um, because it, it really, it really does come down to, you know, just caring more and just being that person who, you know, you're not going to put greed over people. And, you know, this is, this is definitely the conversation that needs to be had. Um, you know, we're both fellows in New Leaders Council, and we've been um, kind of talking about, you know, just social change and dismantling stigmas. Um, and so, so you've talked a lot about um, being able to meaningfully address figuring out why an issue is the way it is. Um, and so I, I, I want to know, like, how we can, we've kind of addressed a lot of this, but, um, you know, better deal with societal perceptions of things like uh, mental illness and mental health and, you know, stemming the tides of um, homelessness and so on. You did kind of talk about that and, you know, what kind of historically went wrong, like with why we kind of look at things so aggressively. Um, and we haven't always been dysfunctional. We we were talking about that, how like we were, we were better angels before, but now it's like we're, you know, just kind of seeing. So how do we begin to figure out like, why we think this is this is the best way forward and is it going to really take something like this pandemic to put us in such financial and economic straits um that that we'll start to pull together or do you think we'll become more fractionalized that's fractured as a society i think i think i think we are have started to see fractures right i think when people are when people are dealing with a lot with their own crises and their own uh, stress about what the future will be that only gets worse, right? And so how do we, yeah, I mean, you're right. How do we come out of this in a, in a positive way? I think for the people, um, I, think that's an, I think that's an issue, right? I think, I think we're dealing with a really interesting time um, where data, facts, where narrative has taken more to people, taken on for more people than facts and data, right? So and science. So people, it's almost like people science. distrust scientists. They distrust academics. They distrust doctors and any expert who or egghead. Right. You know, they're just like, well, the narrative, the story that I heard, is more compelling to me than the facts that you present. Right. So it's like, you know, how do you continue to 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 address that in a time when disinformation? When it's it's funny because there's so much information out there, and you can do so much research, but but yeah, this is a time when I think disinformation and you know those fractured pieces of society have become even more prevalent because I think there's so much. It's so much harder to suss out what is wrong, right? What is different, and it all is dependent on your perspective, your bubble, and your news sources, and other things of that sort. You know, there's a demonization of news sources for the most part. You know, the news is, you know, people like to say that the state is our current administration. Obama was also was also demonized in the press. You know, there's lots of things that the press does that you know might not be good, but there's also things that that they need to move forward. And so it's it's how do we kind of move past that, 
you know, how do we move past that in an information age? And I don't think we've yet figured that out. I don't think it, we've even come to the surface of figuring out that problem in society. And I think that is probably one of the biggest issues that I see is that how do you, how do you combat all these narratives when there's 700 different messages all the time? People are exhausted. You know, right now, I know that people are exhausted. So yeah, I don't want to even be on Facebook and see, you know, see all the different things that are going on. And so we really need to, I think that's one of the biggest issues that I see right now is that you can't do anything unless we address all of these different things that are coming up in society about disinformation and, and, and all of that. But I do think it also is a time to come back and think about those underlying issues, right? I think when I see, when I talk about domestic and sexual violence, it's like we know that housing insecurity leads to that economic instability, substance misuse, um, you know, some of the stigma on homelessness. You know, we know that, you know, when the state of Michigan decided to close all of their um, state-run institutions, that uh, many of them ended up having just being sent out on the street. Many people just ended up being sent out on the street who had, you know, moderate to severe mental illness. And mm -hmm. so thinking back to why some of these issues are the way they are and all of those and, and that kind of background information is even more important now than it was in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, and so now we need to start addressing those issues in that way and thinking about how do we start to move that forward, right? Thinking about those stigmas, right? Why are those stigmas the way that they are? Why do people demonize mental illness? They've been doing that for years, right? People would drop their drop their family member off at a at a or something and institution and say, "I never want to see them again." Exactly. How do you start to think about that and start to bring people in a different space? And a lot of that is about narrative. A lot of that is about bringing people into a different headspace um, and learning from people. And I think what we what I've also heard is, uh, let's normalize learning and growing <laughs> right so right now people just want to fight 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 that's it right like i have my answer i know everything everybody is a pundit um we need to normalize i don't say that i'm an expert on anything right i'm not an expert because i could learn so much more and there's so much more to every issue but what i do recognize is that as i learn more information i assess it out and i and i bring it back to my fundamental beliefs you know, that's why I think politics to me is not something that is politics, right? Politics is not politics. It's not just this outlying being that's there. For people, politics is their daily life. It impacts every single facet of their daily life, whether that's local politics, state or federal politics, because all that impacts your daily life. And so to me, it's a values issue. It is my value that I believe that everybody in the society should be taken care of in a good way and that nobody should be left behind. And so when I look at my values, that's why I go towards certain areas of, of the spectrum. But, you know, I think that's what is so important is we need to get down to our fundamental values. So if you say as a, you know, someone who is, you know, this, this might be a little bit um, risque, but for someone who's, you know, a church going person, right? Or says that they believe in Christ. Well, what is, what is, what does Christ talk about as fundamental values? Caring for others, talking about all that, but then, but then when you look at church advocacy agencies. They're all against, you know, anything that in their estimation, like that's wrong. But it's like, if you were a true follower and disciple of the way that Jesus right. led, it would have been with compassion and empathy and right. serving your fellow man. And it wouldn't, wouldn't have been, I'm going to demonize you because you believe in abortion or you believe in gay marriage or, you know, and it's right. just you know, where does that narrative come from when you call yourself a follower? And, and it's just like a religion across the board when in some way right. 
you know, their, the underlying philosophy is, you know, let's care for our fellow humans. Let's be better. Right. And, and if we were caring for other humans, we would also relate that back to some policy issues that they should be addressing, right? Those ones that we just talked about, right? When you talk about homelessness, well, okay, people would rather give money to one issue, right? Well, we wouldn't need that profit. You know, my goal as a nonprofit is that I'm not needed anymore. My goal is to put myself out of business because I've addressed the issue. That is my goal as a nonprofit. You know, in some ways, when you think about it, like nonprofits in America, they're all around, let's feed people. Let's make sure that people are educated. Let's make sure that people have, you know, access to clean water in Flint or, you know, and it's just, when you look at the rest of the industrialized world, this actually leads to my last question. Um, why is America, you know, like, uh, so getting it so wrong when we're we're the same you know kind of like wealth level and you know there's this this just division because look at nonprofits in Europe and they're all around like hmm, let's come up with new and innovative ways to you know uh, you know just just improve technology and our nonprofits are about you know just just coming up with something that's new and creative and you know bringing people together or let's be more sustainable as a planet you know that's where they they don't necessarily have to you know feed the people because the government is taking care of them and so um in america the the biggest share of the population really lacks health insurance and we carry more medical debt which is another reason why we're not on the same wavelengths as like a lot of wealthy industrialized nations particularly in europe we die more often from preventable causes and americans face um, higher out-of-pocket costs for medical care um, than citizens of almost every other country. So what have other countries done to achieve universal health care and to cover everybody that the United States has not? I think it goes back to some of those fundamental philosophies. I, don't, I, I am not someone who automatically says the government should be providing everything or, you know, all of your private industry should be. I think, I think when you look at government intervention over the past many decades you know we started with traditional public administration and that led to a lot of interesting issues right looking at um you know things like favoritism and you know um cronyism and all those types of things and then we moved into a space you know a government was kind of providing everything then we moved into a space where we moved into new public administration right where we talked about um cost cutting measures and how we be efficient and that was the only focus right well, we have to, and then we started privatizing everything and contracting out and all these different things. So I think now we're moving to a new new space where we, we need to recognize the role of government, right? The role of government is multifaceted. We have that triple bottom line as a government entity. It's as government as a whole has a triple bottom line to take care of citizens. If we were to say, nope, the reason why I think a lot of people don't trust government, and this is just one of many, but is because they've had such terrible policies and, and, and ramifications in many cases down the line. But at the end of the day, the last place that you're gonna go is the government, right? Because they're there. Like, you know, I talk about this with Honor Community Health a lot is that, you know, we're a good safety net entity and people forget about us until they need us, right? And then, you know, and so, and so when you think about government, like they're, everybody hates them until all of a sudden they need them, right? Then, you know, I said this with, um, you know, a lot of the COVID-19 crisis, all the people being like, well, you know, if someone dies from it, they die from it. You know, it's, it's about survival of the fittest. And I said, until it impacts you, <laughs> 
like until it impacts you, then all of a sudden you're going to be Karen at the grocery store yelling at everybody in their mother to make sure that your person doesn't die or someone that you're connected with personally doesn't die. And so when you think about all those kind of pieces together, I think what we need is to start moving towards new public service, which is a philosophy that has kind of come out that talks about the importance of government looking at ways, things that are a little bit more strategic and innovative than they have in the past. So that's looking at, you know, how do we do public-private partnerships in different ways? How do we partner with these different entities? You know, not everything that the, the government doesn't have to provide everything, right? But how do we do this in the best way that is strategic and, and best for, for the end, end all be all values of taking care of society. So when you look at, you know, right now we're dealing with something with the Phoenix Center in Pontiac. And so when I look at that, I'm like, well, wouldn't it be best if we had a public-private partnership so that the city's not all of a sudden getting into entertainment, <laughs> the entertainment business, that's silly. Let's partner though with somebody. We need to start thinking about those broader community building coalitions that are government entities working with others working with nonprofits, working with for-profit businesses and how we can move that forward. Some of that might be the government is the best to provide this because that's the most equitable, right? But some of that might also be, yes, the public sector provides that the best. But we have to go back to those, those fundamental questions that we ask is, when is government intervention necessary? When is market intervention the best? When is, you know, all those kind of different pieces that, that lead into policy decisions. And we have to start thinking about that in a broader context based on the values of society and what, what is the role of that? The, role, the value of society is that we should be taking care of people, and and that our people, and that we need to we need to make sure that our citizens are taken are taken care of, um, and that's all people. <laughs> and exactly. so I think when you look at you know we talk a lot about equality. It's not about equality. It's not about equity. But it's not even equity. It's about breaking down barriers to liberation, and then it's about inclusion. So actually including the people that we need to in society who have been left out. So we can't get to that. We are at such a small level of what we need to be at. We're just having, having the equality conversation. Well, even if you bring people up to equality, there's still inequities because you can't be equal if there are other systemic barriers and things that are in your way. But you also can't, like, why are we then investing a million resources when we could actually be addressing, you know, you might have seen the pictures of the, of the people standing on boxes to see over a fence, right? But why are we adding boxes? Why are we investing in that when we could be addressing the systemic barriers? And lowering the fence. Why exactly. is that? Or getting rid of the fence. Blow up the fence. <laughs> you know, that's what we need. That's what we need to think about. And if we don't do that, then we're going to go back into the same type of situations that we've been in. And unfortunately, I think that always goes back to um, you know, inequities for the most vulnerable, inequities for people of color, inequities for women all of that kind of pieces. So we need to start blowing all those barriers up and, and moving forward and doing it for the best of everybody. Um, and so I think that for me, you know, again, I think it goes back to that collectivism conversation is that we're all in this together. Um, even if that means that someone's getting a little bit more than you. As me, if I said, I would gladly pay more taxes so that someone else can make sure, so that we can make sure that someone else gets healthcare, that someone else you know, if I were making a million dollars, my philosophy would be the same way. What can I, what do I, what am I spending a million dollars on? Exactly. And that was something that, um, you know, James Chapman, one of our guests um, um, on Coffee and Conversations as well, he was, you know, he did a TED talk where he talked about pick him up. He yelled, pick him up in, in the, the, the first two minutes of the TED talk where he's just saying like, 
each one teach one, you know, you can't just, you know, leave somebody behind while you go and you have the glory. You know, he was talking about, you know, a, a, a sports game. I'm not sports, so I don't know if it was basketball or baseball, but um, he was just saying that, like, you can't just leave somebody behind and entrepreneurship and, you know, just, just society should be like, let's do for each other. And, you know, getting back to the, the question of Europe, when you think about, you know, how wealthy industrialized nations as a whole, they tend to want to invest in things that the society as a whole is going to enjoy because they don't say like, oh, well, this is just for us wealthy elites or this is just for the middle class or I don't want those kind of people using this particular. It's like, we'll make it for community benefit. We will, you know, invest in libraries and museums and, you know, healthcare for everybody because of the fact that it's going to benefit me, you, my cousins, my, my right. friends, and it doesn't matter because it, it touches everybody and everybody together is benefiting from something that's good. It's a public good. And that's kind of like the unit functional function, homo, homo, it's like unit function uh, of just, just a society where you're, you're providing something that's homogenous for everybody. And it's like, it's a part of something that, this is why even lately you've seen things in America where like, we don't want to fund that, uh, you, the DIA, you know, why should we have to fund that? I don't go to the DIA that often, but it's like some. Right. Well, and you see that with public transit a lot is just because I won't use it. <laughs> doesn't like, doesn't mean that other people don't need it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that's one of the fundamental issues that I see is when we talk about, you know, the rich and corporations and other things like that is that just because you're rich doesn't mean that you are more valuable to get to decide who gets what in society. And I think that is, you know, a fight that I've, that I kind of have seen, you know, being in development is interesting, right? Especially when you have equity conversations, especially when you deal with funders um, and, and I value them and appreciate them, but right, like those, most of those foundations are set up because someone who was rich put, the, put it into an endowment. Right. And, and that is why they, they last forever. And so they get to make funding decisions about who is most valuable in society. And I have seen, you know, one of the things that came out of this in the nonprofit world is that, you know, black founders of nonprofits or black people running nonprofits have gotten significantly less money during this crisis than others. And I have seen that nonstop throughout all of my work in, in development is that, you know, the grassroots people who are doing doing stuff on the ground, you know, we have a great organization that does stuff with um, individuals who have been uh, who have dealt with trauma so children who have dealt with trauma lost a parent that type of thing and she is working like 75 jobs just to make ends meet and then running her nonprofit. well i'm like well wouldn't it be wise think about the impact you would have because of course it's too risky to invest in her because you know, she doesn't have all the fundamentals. And, like finances, and, so, and it's just like that, that is the problem where you feel like, oh, well, you know, she should just have made better decisions. And instead, but, but well, look, like, the impact that she's having on the society, everyone who comes into contact with her, you know, is made a better person. Their life is improved. And, and that's not something that people see that there's a value in versus, you know, Mr. Tech Startup, I have this, you know, app that's going to help people you know see more cats and you know the cats show up about everything that they do and so that's something a venture capitalist would be like yes i'm going to invest in that business here's 75 million dollars right. and so for me i'm thinking wouldn't it be more wise if you invested in helping her set up infrastructure and capacity building in um, giving her a salary so that you know giving her the ability to have a salary and general operating costs so that she can pay herself 
so that she can build a staffing structure so that she can build all these different things. But you guys don't want to do that because it's too risky. So we see the same thing for venture capitalists and, uh, and, and foundations, right? Like there's such inequities in that. We have all this equity conversation in the foundation world, but then what are we actually doing in equity? <laughs> because we're still putting up barriers when I'd say that the people who are using grassroots nonprofits are some of the people who need the most money. But instead, we're giving to the elite nonprofits. And, you know, guaranteed, I love what some of them do. But like when you look at Susan G. Komen and others, it's like, oh, you're going to keep giving a million, kajillion dollars to all these foundations. And I have no, and I have no problem with foundations, you know, with nonprofit people being paid, but they should be similar. But it's like, you're going to keep giving this money, but then what's their, you know, what's the best impact? but then leaving all this money on the table for the people who are doing actual work. So, you know, my friend Coleman runs an organization called Micah Six, and we, you know, run off a nipple two hundred thousand dollars, and it focuses on food and food in food insecurity and neighborhood stabilization. But yet, some of our other similar entities dealing with food in the area get a kajillion dollars a year. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's a lot of that same conversation about like the people who are rich get to decide who is valued in society. Worthy. Like this is this is who we think you know an example of who should be rewarded. You know, yes. their hard work. And the Whereas other if we, hard if they just provided a tax structure, the people who do focus on equity is for the most part the government. Now, I'm not saying they're perfect, but for the most part, the government now can be held accountable. And if, if we really tried, if we really kept pushing and we called our elected officials and all of that stuff and paid attention and, and were civically engaged and engaged in all these other processes, the people who you can hold accountable are your elected officials first. Period. Can be held accountable, period. Then, then they can deal with equity. If you, if we had so many people calling and saying, this is unequitable, this is an unfair policy, we believe in this. I doubt that we would be in such a strong, you know, different environment. I think we would be in such a different environment now than we, than we have been. Um, but we don't do that, right? I mean, I think that's where I think, like, the government is still forced to think about all of their citizens. Most of the government stuff, like the social determinants of health, that's a government-led framework. And so the government has... I didn't even know that. I didn't yes. know that. I'm just thinking... I this mean, it's led from some other... But like, it's just, you know, terminology that maybe a couple of folks... And it's not something that everybody across the board would know. So... It is something that is led by the federal government. It's something that's on all state government. Like, they are thinking about equity in so many different areas. And they're thinking about these systems. But we can't, but I think part of that is funding and other things like that, that they can't actually address the issues because they're not provided the funding. But if we, if we actually invested and said, we can, the government can be held accountable in so many different ways. And if we elected the right people, if we brought people, you know, if we, if we continue to battle and make sure that our administrations are led in, in, in and empower people with the knowledge to know that their elect officials are not only there for them to access. I've had so many people tell me, it's like, oh, you're a council person and it's all so holy. I'm like, I'm still Ernestine. I'm a normal person. I'm accessible. Right. I give my phone number out to everybody. And if I can't work for you and then take it up the chain to our state senators, our state reps, you know, you know, the, the uh, senators and uh, representatives on, you know, the, the, the Michigan level, the, the, the national level. Right. So, you know, if I can't be that person for you, you need to realize that that's what we're for, you know, right. uh, and you demand accountability from all of us. Right. And that's why policy is interrelated with everything else. Right. That's why policy is related to all of these different issues, because you can't affect long term change 
you can you can bring it to the national conversation with grassroots stuff, but then you need to bring it to a policy side. And I think that is what's going to move us to the next level. It is a constant fight, and I think that can be overwhelming and just wearing down on people. But it, you know, I think eventually, you know, you know, they always say the arc of justice bends. To, you know, the arc of the world bends towards justice. Yada yada yada. But um, no, no, you know, yada yada. I need to hear that quote because I, I have to say about her. The arc of justice. Tell me more about this. Uh, but I think that's what we need to continue to focus on. And that's why I am someone who believes in the government because there really are, um, there are ways that we can help hold those people accountable to make sure that equity is there. And the only way that we, because a business is gonna do what's best for themselves, right? Um, the government is really meant, there, there is a triple bottom line in government to focus on their people, to focus on equity, to focus on fairness and all of these, you know, civic participation, all these different things. And so that is what I think is so important about the government being a role in this um, and holding others accountable. You can hold corporations accountable if you ain't gonna give them money, right? <laughs> if, you, if you give them regulation or you, or you say, here's an incentive to hopeless, that's why government is so important because most of what businesses do is focused on government incentive, right? Like. It's similar to you know the tax and tax benefits that corporations and why they move to different areas, yada yada yada, <laughs> you know all that kind. Like, of you know, and it shouldn't be that. So it, we we dealt with this with the captains of industry in like the late 1800s and early 1900s, where you had the Carnegies, the you know mm -hmm. uh, the Standard Oils, and you had the Rockefellers, who were pretty much they were more powerful than the government, and therefore right. it's like they would put out candidates who would then be their puppets. And right. now we're having the same issues where, you know, big companies like Amazon and, you know, are going to different cities. It's like, hey, dance for me, pay me tribute. And the people, and the people why who, it's worth it for me to invest in you when it should be right. the people saying the other way around. And know? the grassroots, who is really fighting for the poor? Who is fighting for low income people? Who's fighting for minorities? It's like, you really have to think about who has the power. The power is related to who has money, right? And, and that is just, we need to start building up all these systems again, right, in different ways. Because for example, right, if we started to look at publicly financed elections, that would change how people have to, you know, for Seattle, I think it's Seattle that has currently public financing for those elections. And they actually invest money as a government entity and give like $500 for every citizen in their entire city. Yeah, which political action committee can like donate how much and you know so right and so when you look at that it's like okay well now people have to spend their time at the doors and convincing actual voters to give them that five hundred dollars right isn't that a lot different than hosting political fundraisers and doing all these thousand dollars a plate right that that changes how we how people get into office and we need to start thinking about those solutions as well because it really all again see every issue that we brought up tonight <laughs> hasn't it come back to the same things right <laughs> it's exactly. and it and it, that really and so you know just to, to wrap things up that was actually not my final question but um you know i i really think that 
<laughs> um, you know, we, we have to, we have to be able to, you know, just kind of like, and I feel like social determinants of health, you know, that that's really, really important for people to see that there are barriers to, you know, so many things that, you know, and you gave this analogy of, you know, that, that kind of meme with the, with the people who are standing up in front of this gate. And it's like, why do we have the gate? Why are they not able to, I think they were looking at a softball game or something. Yes. And, and why are they a part of that softball game? Right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you gotta really tackle that. And, you know, there are so many different ways we can do that through, you know, like you said, you know, public-private partnerships and, you know, having more corporate social responsibility. And I think those are some ways, but I think seeing that there, that we are the new generation of, you know, leaders. And as millennials, I think it's up to us as a generation to say, no, this isn't going to be how it is going forward and to demand more. I mean, I think if you know, the last question I asked about like, why is America so far behind it? Like Europe does X, Y, and Z. When Europe sees something that's not right, they protest, they will stand up and demand more. We kind of aspire to be the, the wealthy people who are, you know, calling all the shots. And so it's like, right. let's call the boat. I saw a documentary once that talked, it was actually Vox or Vice News talked about how um, there was a trailer park full of poor people and, you know, they were raising the rents. They were like, so there were these tours for wealthy mm -hmm. individuals who can come and look at the trailer parks, invest in buying them and then raising the rents on them for people who were, you know, all, they were only making like maybe $300 a month or something on like um, social security benefits or, or um, uh, unemployment or, um, disability payments and things and so they were already financially strapped but yet these people who were coming to buy their trailers you know and being shown this tour almost like it was a tourist attraction it's like come and invest yeah we're gonna go on this yeah. fun tour look and at all the poor people it's poverty poor yeah. And I mean, like the, 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 at the end of the story, they asked one of the residents who lived there who was, you know, living paycheck to paycheck, they asked like, uh, how do you feel about these tours of these people, really rich people coming through here buying your, the trailers that you lived in for 15, 20 years? He's like, can't knock them. You know, they're job creators. One day, you know, I want to be like them if I hit the lottery and hitting the lottery is not the answer. So, and no. I mean, this is, this is our problem. We aspire to be like the wrong kind of people. Right. Right. And then, and then when we do move up, we leave the people behind, right? <laughs> leave the people who we, who we know behind because <laughs> it's their fault. I won. Yeah. What's your problem? Why you couldn't? Yeah. Look, I, I was, I succeeded. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps and we both right. talked about privilege. I feel like I kind of have a privileged background where, you know, I didn't have to really want for too much in life. And, you know, but at the same time, I realized that there are, there are people who live a much different lifestyle than me. And, you know, they, they, right. they, and they don't deserve any I, less than yeah. us. Right. Like I, I recognize my privilege. I am very lucky to be, have grown up the way that I did, but I also grew up with a philosophy and parents that, you know, really, you know, grew this philosophy about helping people and helping each other and, and not leaving those behind. You know, my parents moved to the city of Troy from Madison Heights and gained $80,000 in credit card debt just so that, and, and filed bankruptcy eventually, just so that they could give us a good education. But that shouldn't be the case, right? I, I wish they could have stayed in, you know, a Madison Heights and Warren or wherever they were um, previously so that, because education should be equal, right? 
And that's the thing. We, we left Detroit for the suburbs of Harper Woods where the school systems were better. And, you know, it was just nicer neighborhoods. You didn't have to worry about things. And so it right. was... You know, you you as a kid, you can live an idyllic childhood. You don't have to worry about right. things, um, and it and it should just be the same across the board. And that's the thing. Right. We were up. And not everybody can do that, right? Not everybody can get up and leave where they are because because you know housing issues and income, you know all of those inequalities that we talk about. And so you know it's like that's why we just need to invest and change the way that we're you know for education, change the way we're financing education in many ways. It shouldn't be based on your zip code. It should be based on you know people <laughs> should be based on getting the best quality education for all um, and so all you know it's again it's all interconnected it all moves together um, but we really need to start having these conversations more and moving them forward um, if we're going to come out of this with the strongest society that we should have um, and not saying that it will be perfect and, and nothing ever will be right there's always the beta test and we're less, having you know that's the thing less. about like you know the scientific community they go through different iterations of tests and they figure right. it out you know and that's that's kind of the, the mentality we need to have we need to at least try some things and be doers and you know we do something it doesn't work we keep working to continuously improve and you know i love that you know this conversation ran the gamut it it, it had you know we talked about you know healthcare. we talked like about, every conversation we have i know i know this is why i love so audience this is why i love talking to scott stewart um, and I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, quick right. And, you know, so eventually we're going to figure it out. And then you're going to be reading Scott Stewart's bestseller. Uh, Scott, how did we fix this? So thank you so much. Thank you, Miss Ernestine. I appreciate you. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of Quick to Politic, the podcast. We have discussed the social determinants of health. And we look forward to having you tune in again next week. Once again, this is your host, Ernestine Lyons, and this has been Quick to Politic, the podcast.